Modern Christianity, most of modern Christianity is all about the liturgy. Liturgy to the Roman Catholic means pretty much the Mass. Mass is the liturgy. It's the process. For the Protestants, it's the common prayer or the formulary of public prayers. It's the ceremony, the process. And this pretty much is dominating all Christianity, right? This this liturgical Sunday morning, this is how we've always done it kind of mentality, right? This the, this mindless ceremony. And then, you know, periodically you'll have these breakaway groups and the breakaway groups, they want something more, right? And they, they want something dynamic and something genuine. And then they become all about the experience and uh, they want to experience God. Is there a problem with that? Not at all. Absolutely. No problem. However, it needs to be according to what? It needs to be according to Scripture. Take your Bibles and go to Psalm chapter 12. So uh, what we want is we want a relationship with God. We want a relationship with God through his Scripture, right? God gave us a Bible, not as an aid to devotion, but he gave us a Bible so that we can know him through his word. And we've talked about that in this fellowship before. It's a finite book, right? There's only a finite number of words in this book, but this book makes known the infinite. It's a spectacular book. It's an amazing book. So in Psalm chapter 12 and in verse 1, it says, For the director of music, according to Shimoneth, a psalm of David, Help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak deception. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says, We will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who is our master? Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. O Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. That's quite a quite a verse, isn't it? The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. And this is the condition of fallen man. That fallen man gravitates towards the dishonorable and the defiled. That by in and of himself and by himself, that's the direction that he goes. Fallen man gravitates to the most perverse, the most prideful, the most envious. Yet he knows not whether he goeth or whither he goeth, since in the case of spiritual blindness, the blind doesn't realize he's blind. You ever notice whenever you try to talk to somebody about goodness and righteousness, they're like, Psh, give me something more exciting. Go to a, well, I used to tell people, you know, go to blockbusters and look at the, look at the wall and, and look at how, you know, what are people looking at? Are they looking at goodness and righteousness and holiness? No, they want excitement. They want, you know, scandal. That's what people are gravitating towards. The believer sees all this and cries out to God, help, for the godly are no more, and the faithful have vanished from among men. Don't you feel lonely sometimes? I do, right? The things that thrill your heart, the world has no use for. There is a distinct difference between us and them. Go to Psalm 51. Look at verse 2. It says, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I know my transgressors, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. 
Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be cleansed. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. At speaking of the bones you crush, meaning that when God, you know, reproves us periodically, you know, let me turn around and rejoice and bless him. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now listen to this. Do not cast me from thy presence or take my Holy Spirit from me. And that was Old Testament, remember, and Holy Spirit was conditional. It's very much part of us now, isn't it? It's the very seed of our being spiritually. So there is no taking the Holy Spirit from us. But in the Old Testament, God could take the Holy Spirit from somebody. And this was overwhelming to David, to think that God would take away from him his Holy Spirit. And why was that? Because it was through that Spirit that David communed with God since he was a boy sitting out in the field with his sheep. Isn't that something? But think about this. I would suggest that for most Christians today, they wouldn't even notice if God took their spirit away from them. <laughs> David would, but most didn't, wouldn't. We've talked in this fellowship about cultural Christianity, and we've explained this, right? Cultural Christianity is just, look, you grew up in a Christian place, and that's what you do, right? And it's no different, really, from if you were Muslim and you grew up in a Muslim land, you'd be, what, culturally Muslim. And this describes most of Christianity. I was looking at some statistics this morning. Pew Research Center in 2020 said that 65% of adults in the U.S. identifies Christians. And you'd hear that and you'd go, wow, that's awesome. We got a lot of Christians in this country. You might be even less optimistic if you knew that that same poll back in 2015 said that there were 75% who identified as Christian. Or in 2012, 78%. Or in 2001, 81.6%. And you'd see, you'd say to yourself, well, there's a downslope, but, you know, Christians still rule, right? Well, no, no, I, not like that, not in that sense, because I want you to remember that most Christians in this country and in Western Europe and really anywhere are cultural Christians. They're cultural Christians. They're Christians by name only. And I don't say that to denigrate anybody. I say that just to make it clear to you that Christianity isn't something that you're born into. It's not something that you are because your parents were and your grandparents were. Christianity is a relationship, a commitment between you and God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a day-by-day -day thing, right? It's a day-by-day -day thing. And the Bible speaks of what we call the remnant. What's the remnant? Well, it's translated also residue, the residue. These aren't necessarily flattering terms. It sounds like something you wipe off or wash off your dishes before you put them in the dishwasher. But the point here is, is that you, <laughs> you have the group and then you have those who are remaining, the remnant, right? And for the faithful Christian, we are a minority of the majority, but we are certainly a minority. And we just need to see it that way. It's not because we're greater in that sense. I mean, we're not puffing ourselves up, but we are a minority. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 35 says that, and the highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. 
See, so who are we? We are the remnant who walk in that way of holiness. Take your Bibles, go to Matthew real quick, Matthew chapter 7. So when we talk about cultural Christianity and we talk about, you know, that the remnant, the residue is really a small part of that, then Matthew 7 takes on a whole new meaning, 7.13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is a road that leads to light, and only a few find it. Now, how about that? Only a few find it. Is that because God's whispering it in this person's ear, but not in everybody else's ear? No, no. What does it say in Proverbs? Remember, wisdom standeth in the square. He shouteth from the rooftop. All you simple ones, turn ye at my reproof. But what happens? Most people turn away, right? Most people turn away. So today we're going to look at what the scripture says about godliness. We're going to look at godliness. What is godliness? You see, culture, culture has no problem with a person that talks to God. But if that person says that God talks back to him, well, we got a, we got a candidate for the insane asylum. <laughs> Can't have that talking back. God shouldn't be talking to people. That'd be an interesting Pew Research poll is going around to Christians and saying, do you believe that God can talk to you? When you are godly, you should be having a two-way conversation with God regularly. It's a relationship. Go to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm 4, look in verse 2. It says, how long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Selah. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Isn't that beautiful? God sets the holy, the godly apart. He sets them apart. Uh, humankind loves delusion and his false god, and he's content in his sanctuary of lies and resents anyone who threatens it, right? You come along and start talking to the natural man, and you start telling him about truth. He wants nothing to hear about it. Because what? Because you threaten his little sanctuary of lies. But God listens to the godly. The, they are his. Godliness isn't something that we achieve simply by gritting our teeth and setting our mind to it. It doesn't work that way. You don't make yourself godly. It's a way. I was thinking about golf. I was thinking about my in-laws, my, uh, my father-in-law and, and uh, my mother-in-law, and they, they love to play golf. And they go out and play golf. And, and one of the truisms for playing golf is the harder you try, the worse your game becomes. It's just a fact. When you grit your teeth and try to play better, it never works. Yeah, it, it is unlike any other sport. The harder you try, you know, other sports, if you're, you know, say you're playing football and you're, and you're having a bad day, you're having a Snickers day. You're having a Betty White day and playing football. And what do you do? You eat a Snickers bar and you're good to go and you hunker down and you get the job done. But when you're playing golf and you're, you're just not doing well, if you hunker down, your game just goes from bad to worse. It's just the way it works. It's crazy like that. Well, it's a lot like that with your spiritual walk. You can't grit your teeth into doing better, right? You can say through a, a disciplined walk that I will de devote more time to God in my life. I will pray more. I will read more scripture. I will give more. Those are certainly things that you can do. But the godliness part of it is God's work within you. It's God's work within you. You're simply getting out of the way and allowing God to have his way in your life, which is God's intention all along, right? I mean, if God could, he would fill you completely. Not only, you know, he's giving you that Holy Spirit, which is awesome, 
but your mind with light. But who gets in the way? We do. And this is what grace means. When we talk about grace, grace means allowing God to do what he intends to do in your life, right? That's grace. This is the difference between the pagan mystic and the godly Christian. The pagan mystic is all about my spirituality. I'm so deeply spiritual. The godly Christian recognizes that within himself, he has no real power, he has no real wisdom, and he has no real goodness, right? What does the Bible say? In myself, I am nothing, right? Paul says, in me, that is, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, no good thing. It is God. Remember the the, um, metaphor of the clay jars, right? That we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That's grace. God flows in us, through us. His power is manifested in us. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had a discussion about practice and doctrine, and, and Mark Dickey was emphasizing doctrine, and many of us were emphasizing practice, and they're both important, right? Uh, I was hoping uh, Mark would be here today because I wanted to share that absolutely, if we're talking about a godly lifestyle, doctrine is important. It's important. Absolutely. Go to First Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy 6. And look at verse 3. It says, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest. Now listen to this. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt minds who have been robbed of the truth. How about that? Men of corrupt minds who have been robbed from the truth. And you see a lot of this in online Christianity, right? There is an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions. Evil suspicions. Goes on and says, and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. How about that? I can't tell you how many churches have been corrupted by this way of thinking. You know, people who started off with a deep desire to know God and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then after years of being involved in the machinery of the ministry, they are consumed by it. And pretty soon, they're more interested in fact sheets than they are in Scripture. It's just one of those things. But godliness with contentment is great gain, great gain, right? The world says, you know, work hard, make the big dollar, right? Be prosperous. You know, you talk, I mean, just the word prosperity, think about it. You talk to most people and you talk about prosperity, they immediately think of money. They don't think of health. They don't think of emotional prosperity and family, right? About being fulfilled and having a meaningful life. No, it's all about the buck, right? Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we, what? Brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Boy, that is really profound reasoning. We're not taking anything with us. So why would we want to spend our entire lives seeking after money? I mean, why would we want to do that? And this is what we call the poverty poverty of our faith. See, the thing is, is that it's the great leveler of faith. We brought nothing into this world. We'll bring nothing out. And think deeply on that. That is very profound. I mean, how much time, how much envy do we cultivate in our lives 
when we're looking at our paycheck and our house and our car, and then we look at our neighbor's house and paycheck and car, and we go, wow, I wish I had that. And then it goes a step further, and it's not just, I wish I had that, but doggone it, why don't I? Life is unfair. And that is the premise, by the way, of totalitarian governments like communism. Envy. How dare that person have something that I don't have, right? How consuming the sin is. And since he has something that I don't have, I hate him for it, and I'll take it by force. And it's what we were talking earlier about Vladimir Putin and the re-emergence of communism. That's what we're talking about. It's a system of government that is based on envy, completely on envy. We just don't put confidence in financial and material prosperity. Why? Because we have reasoned in our minds that we brought nothing into this world and we are taking nothing out, right? By having that good sound reasoning, we basically shut the door on the devil in that whole category of envy. To the disciple, godliness and contentment are our only true gain, our only true gain, and nothing more. And this has to rank high in our thinking. Satan always seeks to entangle and consume us with our own financial survivability, right? I always think of the man. Remember the painting where the man is sitting there, this old gentleman? He's got the loaf of bread in front of him, and he's bowing his head, and he's got his hands like this. And I, I get, look, I got goosebumps. Isn't that sweet? That picture just always has blessed me because that's godliness with contentment. The obsession with finances leads to what? Bad judgments, accepting of bribes. I mean, it's amazing what people will do for money. We were just talking about that the other day. We watched a movie called uh, Gorky Park. It was it was a movie from the 80s, 83. A lot of the story was they were trying to steal these red sables. Sables are like animals, right, that they have this beautiful fur. Soviet Union had a, had a corner on the market with these red sables because they were sought after throughout the world, and they sold these furs for just huge amounts of money while somebody was trying to steal those you know, those wild sables and bring them over to the West, you know, and uh, all these people are getting killed in this movie. I mean, it, because they wanted these sables and and it was just a story of and and I commented to my wife. I was like, it is amazing how cheap human life becomes when you're when you're seeking after the almighty buck. Right. Yeah. And and the, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, Satan sets up this you know, false duality right on the one hand you have communism which is all about envy and then you have on the other hand capitalism which is all about greed isn't that something i mean it's not all about greed what there are things for about capitalism the free markets and people having the freedom to make choices without state intervention that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about that you have international capitalists who you know would sell their own mother if they had to do you see what i'm saying I mean, they have no allegiance to any country or any ideology. It's all about them and and their greed. And that we have to we have to keep that in in mind. Um, go to Matthew chapter six. Matthew six. Can I think about how this love of money has has oriented the church? Right. That you know that these churches are five hundred one c threes. Right. And the government comes along and says, now we need to be tolerant. And if you're not going to be tolerant, if you preach a message that we don't like, such as you know, what they're doing in Canada now, you know, that if you preach against homosexuality, you're preaching a message of hate. And and so churches, what are they doing in order to keep their 501c3 status? They'll cave to the, 
the pressure. I don't know what they call it up in Canada. It's not 501c3, but the idea is still there that, you know, that they are nonprofits and they get a tax break on it. And then the government comes along and it's all the love of money is the root of all evil. That's what it comes to. You know, people will say, well, you know, I've got to do one thing in order to do the other. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to accept that, that tax, you know, deferment or whatever. Anyway, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Right? Where is your treasure? As we consider this topic of godliness, where is your treasure? Remember, with food and raiment, therewith be content. Therewith be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Where's your treasure? I think the church needs to be asking this question a lot. First Timothy 6, verse 8, it says, But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People, on the other hand, who want to get rich, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Wow. How about that? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. Now, this is the metaphor here. This piercing through is a piercing through with a javelin that goes right through you. But one other aspect of this, it's self-inflicted at a person. It's like somebody jumping on a javelin, if you can imagine that. We do it to ourselves. You know, somebody who would hear that message would say, oh, come on now. I, if I had lots of money, I'd be different. Well, no, you wouldn't. But in verse 11, it says, but you, man of God, and this is speaking to anybody who is seeking godliness, okay? Whether man or woman, you, person of God, flee from all this and pursue what? Righteousness godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. This is it, right? This is the godly lifestyle. Where your treasure is, that will your heart be also. Is our treasure on these things or our treasure on gaining influence and power? Go to Titus chapter 1, money. It's interesting listening to the people of the world and listening to the philosophies of the world and, and people come out and start wagging their finger about the evils of capitalism and the evils of envy. And I'm looking at their lives and they are the most covetous, you know. I mean, a lot of people, you know, rant and rave and take to the streets against, you know, the, the Wall Street bankers. But if they were a Wall Street banker, they wouldn't do it because they're taken care of. You know, you're, you're, you're out there protesting about something that you don't have, right? It's, it's not based on principle. It's based on envy. Titus chapter 1, look at verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness, leads to godliness. So when we talk about the truth of the word of God, what's the end goal? Godliness in a practical sense, right? That we are godly people. Verse 2, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie, promises or promise before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. 
God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. God's knowledge leads to godliness, right? You should see over a space of a lifetime as you go through life and increase godliness in your lifetime, okay? Godliness is the objective. If the disciple of God daily keeps himself or herself in the center of God's will, they will shed their ungodliness and become godliness, become godly, I'm sorry. Conversely, if that person fails to keep themselves in the center of God's will daily, they will progressively lose sight of godliness. It's a daily walk. And when we say daily, we're talking faithfulness, faithfulness. It's not faithfully just opening the Bible because I'm supposed to and faithfully, you know, throwing up some tongues. It's a relationship that you're faithfully seeking the Lord's face, right? You're faithfully seeking God's, you know, presence in your life. It's through Christ that we have access to God. Go to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3. I think about the word abandonment. It's a good word, right? Because such as the as we're seeking after the things of God, what are we doing with the things in our lives that are of the world? We're abandoning them. We're leaving them behind, you know? I mean, there are... There is a fleeing in the Bible, a proper fleeing, you know. What does the Bible say? Flee youthful lust. Flee sexual immorality, right? Flee idolatry, right? We're fleeing. I think about, you know, what we did, unfortunately, in Afghanistan. What did we do? We fled and left all our military equipment. <laughs> Maybe that's not the best analogy, but you see what I'm saying? When we flee the world, right? Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. John Bunyan said the city of destruction. That's what he called it, the city of destruction. When we flee that city of destruction, we are forsaking, abandoning the things in our lives that meant something to us once upon a time, but they don't anymore. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. It says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Abandoned. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. How about that? I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. Forsaking all for Christ. Now remember, Satan, what is he doing? He's working full time to get back in there, right? You've abandoned him. You've abandoned the glitter and the and the gloss of the world. You're done with it. And he keeps on trying to sneak back in. And you've got to be able to abandon it. It's a deliberateness of a godly person. You are deliberate. The godly person understands that the stakes are high, right? The stakes are high. His or her faithful walk before God must, must, must depend on the truth. It must depend on the truth. A godly person is not a person who is prone to light and transient causes, right? We have political causes that pop up all the time, you know, and they demand your absolute allegiance and people go flocking to them. And then another one pops up over here and they go flocking to that one, right? Why? Because they're so bereft of meaning in their life that they're go they'll go anywhere to get some kind of sense of meaning, right? Well, we're not prone to that type of deal. We're not running around looking for, a, you know, an excuse to be on this planet. That's not what we're looking for. We already, we already know why we're here. The disciple, the godly person has a discerning mind. They can look at this cause and say, that cause is ridiculous. But then look at another cause and say, now that's, that's a worthy cause. And oftentimes it's the goofy, ridiculous causes that show up front page in the newspaper. And the true meaningful causes are the ones that are kind of 
in the background. But that godly person is a person who's going to know the difference between the two. You guys have heard the term, a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth even has its boots on. A lot of lies out there. The godly man or woman is willing to wait and see on certain things. That the truth of a situation isn't necessarily easy to discern. That you don't get it right away. In fact, sometimes you're inclined to think one way, but after prayerful consideration and thought, a couple days later, you just don't see it that way. Why? Because God has changed your mind, right? A godly man or woman builds it into his thinking. They just don't allow themselves to be pushed around or pushed into thinking a certain way. You do not allow yourself to be pushed into thinking. You are prayerfully considering something. You're weighing it. You're thinking about it. And then God says, this is a way. Walk in it, right? And you're like, there it is. There it is right there. A godly person is not one to quickly believe an ill report about someone else. And he certainly does not rejoice in iniquity when that report happens to turn out to be true. Okay? So, and I've fallen prey to that, right? Where you start rejoicing in iniquity and pretty soon you're actually looking for it. You know, there's a glee involved. First Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 6. It says, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching which you have followed. Now listen to this, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tale, but train yourselves to be godly. Train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Isn't that beautiful? That you get the benefits now and then. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Full acceptance. In other words, the teaching that godliness should be sought after or sought above all human endeavors is the greatest human endeavor, right? God gives it his fullest endorsement, right? That's the purpose of the gospel is a godly walk, a godly walk. Godliness is something that we grow in. A person who has spent more time with God will grow more godly. Does that make sense, everybody? Corey just said that, you know, that this relationship with God, it isn't a transactional relationship, right? A tit for tat. But it is, you are in a presence of God and you become godly. I mean, that's it. But we will never grow in godliness if we insist on holding on to old wineskins. But you know what an old wineskin is, right? The old wineskins, what did Jesus say? The old wineskins, they kind of fall apart. They start leaking and they're no good to hold the wine, right? And it, it is metaphorical to mean the old way of doing business, right? We don't hold on to old wineskins. Now, what that it doesn't mean that we change for change sake either, okay? And that's important to say here. It means that when it's time to change something, we change it. We don't feel obligated to walk in the old ways of doing business. It's a walk by the Spirit. We press towards the mark. We cannot allow ourselves to become fixated in our growth. And we cannot allow ourselves to become arrested in our spiritual development either, right? You got to keep growing. When we talk about growth, as it says in Ecclesiastes 3, 5, and 6, it says there is a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to keep and a time to throw away. Was it last week that we talked about how they were taking that serpent that Moses had in the wilderness and they were worshiping it? Well, that's what happens when you hold on to stuff that God says, throw it away, right? Be willing to throw away old habit patterns, all those secret sins and those things that impede your growth. And we all have them and we know what they are. 
Sometimes we've had them for decades and we just won't get rid of them. Let's get rid of them. Let's make a commitment. As with all learning, there will be times when things that once were meaningful to us have become redundant and need to be laid aside to make room for other things that God has in store. Otherwise, you become dogmatic, right? I hear people from the old ministry these days. It's as if I was transitioned back, you know, what, 30 years? It's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is what you've been saying for the last 30 years? God wants more for us. It doesn't mean that the doctrine changes. It means that the growth has happened in your life where you're just seeing it from a bigger picture. You see, you see what I'm saying there? Every day with God is a new day. While there are healthy habits and repetition, there is also a redundancy that kills your soul. Okay? It's a redundancy that kills your soul. God is all about fresh perspectives, deeper understanding, new and unique applications. How about that? I, I love that. You can you can look at a verse one way one day and then come back, you know, a year later and see that verse from an entirely different point of view. And if that's happening to you, God is working in your life. I mean, that's an indication of growth. But if you look at a verse and then a year later you look at the same verse and nothing's changed, you know, it might be a, a good point to say, you know, maybe I don't have that flow in my life. I'm not moving and grooving with God. The same old, same old. I'm in a rut. Well, when you find yourself in that situation, it's time to shake. It's time to shake things up. Time to shake things up. God has big things in store for you, for me. We need to leave the past in the past and move on. Go to Second Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy two, verse nineteen. It says, "Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription: The Lord knows those who are His." And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. How about that? Now, that's a verse and a half, isn't it? The Lord knows who are His. You can fool people. You can't fool the Lord. He knows who are His. Now, of course, we're all His if we're born again, right? But that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about those who are in fellowship, who are walking in a relationship with a godly relationship. You see my point there? And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. We just cannot fool God and we can't fool the Lord Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2, 1. Yeah, First Timothy 2, 1. We're getting ready to wrap it up here. I urge then, therefore, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those in authority. Now, does it, does it make a distinction between good kings and bad kings here? No says we're praying for them. Sometimes we're praying, a lot of times we're praying that their evil deeds are being obstructed, right? But we're praying for them, those in authority that we, why? That we may live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I mean, think of how disruptive to the lives of those people in the Ukraine Vladimir Putin is being right now. You see that? Quiet and peaceable lives. Now, another point is quiet and peaceable does not mean acquiescence and submission either. I mean, there's a time to stand up. You know, it's time for war. There's time for peace. And I, I absolutely say that. But, you know, I used to be a little more cavalier about it when I was a single young man. Now that I have my own two sons, mm, I'm not so quick to go running off to war, right? Or my sons go running off to war. They wouldn't send an old fellow like me. But you see what I'm saying? I don't want my sons to die in a, in a senseless war. And there have been, I mean, I, I'm a student of history. M most of your wars are senseless, pointless, ridiculous. 
They don't have to be fought, and they are. And they're, they're fought for everything but righteous causes. But it does mean that we pray for quietness and peacefulness of life so the disciple can wait upon the Lord unmolested. And that's important. I mean, if I'm fighting a war or I'm all caught up in agitation, I can't be tending to the to the Lord. It says, verse three, this is a good this is good and pleases God, our savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So keep in mind, we we talked about it earlier. Please pray for the citizens, especially the remnant of the Ukraine. Please pray for the remnant of Russia. Pray for the evil tyranny to be confronted with light. I'm reading a book now called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It's about all the um, politics, everything that led up to World War II. There's a sense when reading this that the affairs of the world and the un, what seems like the unalterable path of history just rolls on and there's nothing anybody can do to, to alter it or to stop it. And that's a lie. OK, that is a lie. There is something that we can do every day, and that's to pray, speak in tongues. Right. Absolutely. Pray for Vladimir Putin. Uh, pray for a Vladimir Zelensky. He's the president of the Ukraine. Pray for the Russian and Ukrainian governments. Pray for the Russian and Ukrainian militaries. We talked about that. Uh, pray for the U.S. and her NATO uh, allies. Pray for containment, that this quote-unquote border dispute doesn't spin out of control. And you, by the way, uh, pray for China, too, because China's at the back here. Uh, provoking this thing. Because think about it. If you're China, you can get Western Europe and the U.S. and Russia fighting over here, and you can do your deal over here. So that's just the fact. Um, and like I said earlier, it's been 77 years since our last world war, uh, which is amazing that the peace has been kept this long. And then lastly, before we sign off here, go to John chapter 10. We are godly men and women, first and foremost. John chapter 10, look at verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. How about that? Pretty clear, huh? That's pretty clear. All right, well, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for this teaching. And, and Father, we thank you that this word resonates in our hearts and our lives. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that, that we can grow in godliness and that, Father, we can see things from your perspective and not man's perspective. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you just help us to stay true to you. And, Father, we thank you that we have peace in this world. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh -oh.